Please be seated if you haven't been already. I'm Jamie Duggard, the pastoral intern here, for those of you that haven't met me, and let me welcome you as well. It's so great to see your faces, and uh, for those of you who are joining online, we're so glad you joined us as well. Um, before I read the passage today, I want to start by doing a little bit of imagining. This passage was written for Israel in exile, even though Isaiah wrote it many years ahead of time. Um, and the exile was an event in history when God's people went so far with their sin, it became so serious, that God left his temple, left his holy city, and brought foreign armies to destroy Jerusalem and remove its inhabitants. Before we read this passage today, I want you to imagine a little bit about what exile would be like. I want you to imagine the level of trauma the listeners who received this message of God must have felt. Uh, Tamara Eskenazi explains it this way. Exile. It is not simply being homeless. Rather, it is knowing that you do have a home, but that your home has been taken over by enemies. Exile. It is not being without roots. On the contrary, it is having deep roots, which have now been plucked up. And there you are, with roots dangling, writhing in pain, exposed to a cold and jeering world, longing to be restored to native and nurturing soil. Exile is knowing precisely where you belong, but knowing that you can't go back. Not yet. So imagine that your own home had been destroyed, that you'd experienced the violence of exile, that you're now held captive in a foreign land by a hostile imperial power that doesn't care for you at all. Imagine feeling that God had abandoned you. Imagine feeling like you deserved it. That's the context into which these words come. So now let's hear God's inspired word from Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 11. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken." A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. So as we look at this passage today, I want us to see three things. First, we're going to see who are the voices in this passage. Who is it who's talking? Next, we're going to think a little bit about the way of the Lord. What does it mean to prepare the way of the Lord? And and third, we're going to talk about the vision of God, God showing up in His glory. So we're going to talk about the voices in the passage, we're going to talk about the way of the Lord, and we're going to talk about the vision of the Lord. So the first point, who are the voices in this text? I have to warn you, it's a little confusing. But so first of all, God is speaking in verse 1, says your God, and that's pretty clear. Um, Who is he talking to, though, when he says, comfort your people? Because that is a command. Um, In fact, it's a plural command. In English, we don't really mark our imperatives for singular or plural, but this is plural. God is commissioning a group of people to go to Jerusalem and comfort her. Now, some of the ancient translations take a guess at who that might be. They say, comfort, comfort, O priests, or comfort, comfort, O prophets. Um, But maybe we shouldn't restrict it. Maybe this command is for God's whole people. Well, we'll come back to that idea. But for now, let's move on to the next voice. In verse 3, we have, a voice cries. Whose voice? The passage doesn't tell us. It could be the voice of God, although this voice talks about God in the third person a lot, so maybe it's a human preacher. I think there's another possibility, though. In Isaiah 6, way back near the beginning of the book, Isaiah saw a vision of the heavenly throne room. God did most of the talking, but there were also angels, a seraphim, calling out so loudly that in verse 4, it says, the voice of their calling shakes the temple. And one of these angels announces to Isaiah that his sin is forgiven. Um, So perhaps this is an angel here calling out God's message. Maybe God's command for comfort in verse 1 isn't only for humans, but even for angels as well to bring to Jerusalem. Well, if you disagree with me, that's okay, because the passage isn't entirely clear. But whoever is speaking, the message does ultimately come from God. See verse 5, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Somebody is speaking God's word, so we better pay attention even if we don't know who they are. In verse 6, we meet again a voice. Again, it doesn't tell us who it is. Maybe this is God speaking. Maybe it's an angel again. But this time, when the voice gives a command, cry, it's a singular command. So who is this voice talking to? Well, this time we know, because immediately after that we have, and I said. That I must be Isaiah, right? He wrote the book. 
Um, I will note that there's a footnote in your Bibles uh, that says that there is a big important manuscript which has, and someone says, instead of, and I said. Can't really catch a break with this passage. There's some difficulties with it. Um, It has to do with the fact that there was no vowels written in the original Hebrew, and so you can read it two ways. But all the other big important manuscripts say, and, and I said, and, and that's, what I think, that's what I think it should be. Reminder that Scripture is clear about the things needed for our salvation. It doesn't mean every single passage is clear, but this one has some difficulties, but Scripture is clear about our salvation. So anyway, it, it does seem like Isaiah is speaking here, that, that, that the voice is calling to Isaiah, the prophet. Then finally, in verse 9, we have a singular command, go up. Actually, it's a, it's a feminine singular command. Uh, the word for herald in the next phrase is feminine as well. So the herald of good news is a woman. In fact, uh, it would seem that she is the city of Jerusalem or Zion personified. Although, again, there's a footnote that says maybe it's the herald of Jerusalem, but since Jerusalem is so often personified as a woman, I think that's probably what it is here. This phrase, herald of good news, often refers to somebody who brings the good news about a battle. In Psalm 68, 12, it refers specifically to the women who would go out to meet the king when he returns gloriously from battle, and these women will come out with celebration and song. Maybe you remember that one time that these women made King Saul very jealous when they said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. Um, So Jerusalem, kind of like one of those women, is commanded to go out in joy up into the hills to spread the news of God's deliverance to all the cities of Judah, preparing them to meet the great returning king with the cry, Behold your God. Okay, so mapping out these different voices is a little complicated and mysterious at a couple points. I don't think we have to get too focused on the details. But what I'm interested in is the general picture that emerges. It begins with God himself speaking. Then it moves to the angels, the heavenly messengers, who hear the news and go out and call it out themselves. Then the prophet hears the message and proclaims it to the community of God's people. Finally, those in the community in Jerusalem who hear the message, they go and they proclaim it to everyone else who hasn't heard yet. And so the word of God, which is spoken from heaven, spills out to more and more and more people as each one hears and then proclaims the message in turn. Let's think a little bit more about the human messengers here, the prophet and Jerusalem. What does it take to become a messenger? Well, I think the passage shows us that to be the messenger, you have to first hear the message of hope for yourself. Um, Let's look at the prophet, for example. Verse 6, a voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? Okay, we, we have another interpretive issue here, and that is that there's no such thing as quotation marks in the original Hebrew. And so a lot of commentators think that we might need to move the quotation marks. It can be a little difficult to figure out where someone stopped talking in the Bible. Um, I'd argue we should move them all the way to the end of verse 7, so that, and then verse 8 would be the voice's answer to the prophet. Um, If that's right, then the prophet's whole words would be, 
What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. You see, the prophet makes an objection here. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed this. Prophets often do. You know, Moses says, I am slow of speech and tongue when God wants to send him. Jeremiah says, I'm only a boy. And Isaiah, earlier on in chapter 6, when God called him, had said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. Now God comes to him again with a message, and he objects again. He uses a metaphor. Um, People are like grass or like flowers. They have their brief moment in the sun. They have perhaps their own sort of beauty and glory, but then they fade and they wither away. Specifically, they fade away when the breath of the Lord blows on them. This breath is the, the spirit or wind of the Lord. Spirit and wind are the same word in Hebrew. Psalm 104.30 says that all living beings come to life and die at the movement of God's spirit or wind. It goes for plants, and it goes for people. But, but while the prophet reminds us of the briefness and frailty of human life in general, at the end, he points out specifically, surely the people are grass. Just to say the people of Israel are grass. Your people have come to know this truth quite well, just how fast they can shrivel up and fade away before the might of your presence. It's kind of similar to something Moses says in Psalm 90. He talks about the brief lives of humans like grass that grows up, but is then withered away by the heat of God's anger. In other words, the prophet doesn't sound too optimistic here. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas says about this verse, he is afraid that he will be commanded to cry out something against his people like in chapter 6. You see, in chapter 6, Isaiah told God, here I am, send me. And what happened? God gave him a message of unremitting judgment and wrath against his people. And now God has another message for him. He's like, not again. I'm still traumatized from the last time. Your people are frail like grass. They can't take anymore. Well, that's right, then what what does the voice answer? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Yes, Isaiah, your theology is right so far as it goes. Humans are weak and frail creatures, helpless before the might and wrath of God. There's something you're forgetting. God's word stands forever. God spoke to your forefathers. He made a promise, and God will keep what he promises. Yes, there's nothing in you humans yourselves through which you can endure and overcome. You're grass, you're fragile, you're weak, but there is a power in the Word of God that can sustain you. Before Isaiah could go and preach the Word himself, He first needed to hear the word of hope for God 
for himself. What about Jerusalem? The same holds good for her. Before she can start proclaiming God's word in verse 9, she first needs to hear the comfort from verse 1. What does God tell his comforters to say in verse 1? They're supposed to speak tenderly to her. God's word to Jerusalem will not be a word of wrath, but a gentle word of grace. They are to announce that her warfare is over. And why is it over? Because she has been forgiven. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. She suffered in abundance as a result of her sin, and now God is saying it is enough. It's not that there couldn't have been more suffering. Jerusalem's sin was enough to break the covenant with God and alienate him forever, but God remains faithful. He forgives Jerusalem's sin and speaks words of comfort to her. And all of this is summarized up in verse 9 in two words, fear not, fear not. These are significant words. The message Jerusalem will be given to spread is, God is coming. Now, is that good news? Not if he's coming in wrath and judgment. Jerusalem's experienced that wrath before, and so her automatic reaction to the news that God is coming might well be fear. That's why she must be comforted first. That's why she must be told, fear not. I think we can sum up all of this in this way. When God proclaims a word of comfort to his people, they become empowered to proclaim his word to others. Let me repeat that. When when God proclaims a word of comfort to his people, they become empowered to proclaim his word to others. This is a principle that applies to us today as well. Peter quotes this passage in 1 Peter 1, 23 through 25. You thought we'd finally gotten out of 1 Peter, right? Um, But he quotes our passage. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So Peter says that this good news that Isaiah preached is also the good news that's preached to us. By the way, we sometimes use a word in church, gospel. What does gospel mean? Well, it simply means good news, but specifically the gospel of Jesus is the good news about what Jesus has done for us. Where does the word gospel come from? Well, Isaiah, especially this chapter and maybe a couple of others, this, what, what um, Jerusalem does, this her- being a herald of good news in the Greek translation is where the word gospel comes from in the New Testament. Um, and so Peter says, Now we've received the ultimate good news. Let's stop for a second and and apply that. Um, So Peter says, we've heard the good news, just like uh, Jerusalem. Um, And Peter says that it's an imperishable seed. So while we might be frail as as flowers or grass, we have a word living and abiding in us that we receive when we 
hear the preaching of the gospel or read the Word of God. Let me ask you, have you heard God's Word of comfort to you? Are there grass moments in your life, moments where you really feel your frailty and weakness, where you need to hear that word today? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to you in this passage, comforting you, giving you the good news? What about the other people you know, day by day, who you interact with? Do they need to hear a word of comfort? Where are the places in their lives where they feel like grass, where their weakness and their sin comes to the surface? How might God be calling you to proclaim the gospel in all the different contexts of your life? As we see in this passage, God's word spoken by God, but then cascading outwards. We're called to be a part of that as part of God's people, the new Jerusalem. Okay, so that's our first point. The second two points, we're going to look at the content of this message a little bit more. So for our second point, I want to talk a little bit about this way that needs to be prepared for God. Take a look at verse 3. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. In verse 3, we have a command. Again, it's one of these plural commands, which I take to be given to God's people, very widely considered. And the command is to prepare a road for God. Now, road building can be a difficult business. I mean, I've never done it myself. Children, have you ever seen uh, construction workers building a road? It's a pretty awesome affair, isn't it? That there's, I'm going to probably get this wrong, but you know, then one truck needs to come by and dump all of the asphalt. Then there's another one with a big rolling wheel that needs to come along and roll it all down. Um, not to mention build, you know, blasting tunnels and all kinds of stuff. Did you know that back in the time of the Bible, they didn't have any trucks? No bulldozers, no backhoes, no whatever that big thing with the rolly wheel is. It was rough business building a road in the ancient world. And ancient kings from the land surrounding Israel often boasted of their feats of road engineering on their campaigns and expeditions, how they cut through mountains to attack their enemies, or how they navigated through the wilderness to find gold. The wilderness was a place of emptiness and death, a wild domain that challenged human control, but building roads across it pushed the domain of human control out into the wilderness. Did a little bit to tame and order it. And so you just find kings boasting everywhere about how they moved mountains and filled in valleys to make the wild lands level, ordered, and traversable. This is no human king, though, but this is God who's making his way through the wilderness. Where is he coming from? And where is he going to? For this, we need some more context. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, God's glory descended in a cloud to fill the temple. 
But after years of Israel's injustice and idol worship, the prophet Ezekiel was shown a vision of the glory of God leaving the temple, going out to the east into the wilderness. Now, though, Isaiah tells us that God's glory is going to return to Jerusalem. We get more details in verse 10. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. The language of God's might and his ruling arm recalls the story of Exodus, when God brought his people out of Egypt and led them through the wilderness. We're told that as God is coming, his reward is with him and his recompense is before him. Is that a reward that God is bringing for Jerusalem? Well, maybe. But this language might also be used for the reward God has earned for himself. It could be used for the plunder that a king would have received from victory in battle. You see, when God triumphed over the Egyptian gods, he got a people for himself, Israel. Now God will triumph again by delivering his people from exile in Babylon. Um, a very similar passage in Isaiah 62, 11 to 12, also kind of seems to imply that the reward God brings with him is God's people. Uh, and that's, I think, is why if we move to the next verse, we see that God is a shepherd leading a flock. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. With miraculous power, God has freed his people from their captivity in Babylon. Now he's tenderly shepherding them on the way home. And we see his very individual care. And he cares for the different sheep in different ways. The little lambs he picks up. Those that are pregnant, he leads along very gently. God is portrayed both as the king victorious in battle, who's won his people's freedom, as well as a shepherd king, because, by the way, for ancient Near Eastern people, their kings were all thought of as shepherds. So God is a shepherd king who lovingly cares for his people. I think this helps us understand what the initial fulfillment of this prophecy was. Isaiah is talking about a time when God would bring back the exiles from Babylon and reunite them with the people of God who lived in Jerusalem. Just like what he did in bringing his people out of Egypt, he's going to bring them out of Babylon. There were still people living in Jerusalem, you know. I think sometimes when we read the Bible, we think everybody got taken away to Babylon, but that's actually not what it says. There are people who are left behind, but their community was broken. Many of the children of Jerusalem were scattered and lost. Now God will bring the lost sheep home. And so Jerusalem is called to rejoice and proclaim the good news of God's victory. So Jerusalem coming out to meet God is God's people, and the sheep are also God's people, precisely because this is a moment when God's people has been fractured and he brings them back together. So with that in mind, let's, let's jump back to verse 3. We now understand that God is not only traveling in his own way, he's bringing a people with him. But what do we make of this command to us humans to make the way straight? 
First, notice that in verse 3, we have commands. Uh, we have commands, prepare a way, make straight a highway. But then in verse 4, we actually have a promise. Do you notice that every valley shall be lifted up, the uneven ground shall become level. So God commands us to do something, and then he promises that he's going to do it. That's because God's people are being invited to participate in a project that really requires divine power. Um, Later in the book, we're going to see how God, the creator of everything, is able to transform the wilderness into a garden and bring his people safely through it. But here, humans participate as well. I think it's kind of like when Jesus says, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Now, it's not my power that moves the mountain, right? Uh, And even my faith can be as small as a mustard seed. But it's God's power that actually accomplishes the thing. And yet, He still calls me to have faith in it, uh, my little mustard seed faith. I think here in Isaiah, we see the same thing. God's people being called to do their little role in the big, miraculous thing that God is going to do. What does that actually mean, though? I don't don't think that it's entirely literal. Well, if we were to flip over to Isaiah 57, 14, we would see that clearing the way means removing obstacles. And if we look around a bit in Isaiah 57, in the context of that passage, it seems likely that the obstacles are idols, false gods. And also in that passage, God says that he dwells with the lowly and contrite of heart. So I think that the preparing of the way that Isaiah is saying to do here is largely spiritual work. It's removing the false idols, especially those that may have betempted Israel in Babylon where they'd been. It's making our hearts lowly and contrite. And did you notice how this passage was applied um, when Frank read Mark 1 for us earlier? Um, While it might initially be about God's deliverance from Israel in exile, Mark applies it to John the Baptist and his ministry in the wilderness. He says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to meet to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. So I think part of preparing the way is John's preaching, proclaiming the word, But the part that everybody participates in is repenting. It's confessing our sins so that they might be forgiven. That's how John is calling people to get ready for Jesus to appear. When we repent of our sins, we place ourselves in a humble and contrite position before God, and we clear away the boulders of idolatry from our hearts. So when this passage calls us to prepare the way of the Lord, I think it's at least calling us to repent. And it's not as if that's something that we can achieve simply by our power. This redemption is going to require God to raise valleys and flatten mountains. We're called to participate in that work of God in our small, imperfect way. What are the ways that God might be calling you to repent today? Is there something in your life that's a big boulder blocking the way between you and God? 
And you know it's looming there, keeping you from obeying God, keeping you from being wholehearted in your love of God. You can't fix that just under your own power. And maybe you know that. Maybe you've experienced real defeat with the sin in your life before. But God asks you today simply to repent of it, to confess that it is wrong, to put your faith in His power to deliver you from it, and to endeavor to fight against it in that power. Okay, so that's our second point. We're called to prepare the way of the Lord by repenting. Third point, the vision of God. The message which Jerusalem is given to proclaim in verse 9 can be boiled down to three words. Actually, it's only two in the Hebrew. Behold your God. Uh, In his commentary on this verse, John Calvin says, Behold your God. This expression includes the sum of our happiness, which consists solely in the presence of God. The end, the goal, the purpose of our whole salvation is that we might see God. Notice that in verse 5, the whole goal of the call to clear away for the Lord is so that when God comes, He can be seen by all. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. What is glory? It's kind of a Bible word, right? What, what does that mean? Um, Well, on the one hand, it's a social word. It kind of refers to honor in social situations. So, um, it's, it's the sort of honor we ought to have for authority. When we give people glory, we honor their position. But that could give us the wrong idea, as if the language of giving glory meant that God was dependent on us for His glory. Nothing could be further from the truth. Westminster Confession chapter 2 says that God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself, and is alone in and unto Himself all-sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which He hath made, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. God's glory is intrinsic to who He is, and He manifests it to us. Uh, Metaphorically, glory can be described as heavy or weighty. Describes how God is truly substantial and real as opposed to the lightness and frailty of all created beings. But most importantly, it's also described as light. God's glory shines. You see, our giving glory to God is really our acknowledging the truth of who He is just like the flowers that turn to follow the sun and bask in its light. And so, we find that when God comes to meet His people in the Old Testament, they experience Him as blinding light, even if that light is often shielded by a cloud. For the call to worship this morning, we read Psalm 50, which talks about God shining forth from Zion as He comes. And, and Joe read Habakkuk 3 for us, where God comes from Teman with a brightness like light and flashing rays. Um, and I wonder how many other examples you can come up with of God appearing in the Bible um, with light. It's all over the Old Testament. And this too is kingship imagery, by the way. We've seen God as the king returning from battle to the celebrating Good News Heralds. We've seen God as the king who shepherds people. 
But in the ancient Near East, the king is also called the sun. In fact, Hezekiah, the king from the last chapter, if you were here for my sermon on that, um, we've uncovered many of his royal seals. And do you know what they are? It's a winged sun disk. And of course, in Egypt, they thought of the king as sun. In the little town of Ugarit on the coast, they thought of the king as sun. The idea is that just as creation depends on the sun for life and is in awe of the sun's brilliance, so people depend on their magnificent king. Nobody ever accused kings in the ancient Near East of being uh, too humble. But God is not the sun. You see, because before the sun even existed, Genesis 1 tells us, God spoke light into being. The sun is just the imitation God is the original giver of lights. And so when he comes to rescue his people, he appears in the brilliant lights of divine glory. But the glory of God is both a blessing and a problem. It's a blessing because dwelling with God and basking in the light of who he is is what humans are always meant for. As Augustine said, "'You've made us for yourself, O Lord.'" And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But at the same time, this is a light so bright that it's hard to look upon. And God's glory is so pure that it cannot tolerate human sin. And so there's always this danger that's being guarded against in the Old Testament that this light we long to look at so much could become a fire that burns us away for our impurity. And so God's glory had to be sheltered in the temple if he was to dwell with his people. It had to be hidden behind the cloud. Isaiah knew that this could go wrong. Even with the temple and its sacrifices, the people's sin could become too much. But now God promises that his glory will return. He promises there will be a pardon for sins which is great enough for God to come near his people even in his glory like a tender and gentle shepherd. And we've said that this prophecy was initially fulfilled when God brought the exiles back to the land. It was a public demonstration of God's power before the watching world that the surrounding nations could see. But that can't be the final and full and ultimate fulfillment of this passage. If you read about when the exiles did return, they found it was precisely glory that was lacking. They did not see even the glory of Solomon's old temple, let alone a greater glory of the Lord. Isaiah leaves us waiting for this time when God's glory is going to be revealed to all flesh. And Mark shows us in his gospel when it happened. He shows us John preparing the way, and then God arrives. Right after we see John preparing the way in the wilderness, Jesus comes to be baptized. And what happens when he's baptized? The heavens are ripped open as the Spirit of God descends on Jesus to the voice of the Father's approval. The gospel writers tell us that Jesus is the revelation of God's glory. John tells us in his gospel, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, in Jesus, 
The problem of God's glory is finally solved. Mysteriously, God's glory is veiled in human flesh. Jesus is meek and lowly, maybe not what you would expect when God shows up. He can come close to us and gently guide and care for us. And yet the truth of God's glory is seen even in this humility. In Jesus, we see that God is both glorious and gentle. What is more, Jesus finally provides the necessary sacrifice. In his death on the cross, the pardon is finally given which can deal with sin once and for all. If you're somebody here today who knows the depths of your own sin, who knows that you need forgiveness, then as you look at this cross, God speaks his word of comfort to you in Jesus. Your sins are forgiven. You know, dying on a cross might not seem like divine glory. It might not be what we expect there was at least one centurion there who recognized the mystery and said, truly this man was the Son of God. And he wasn't the last. He was the first of many, as God's glory was revealed through Christ's death on the cross, not only to the Jewish people, but also to all the nations of the world, to all flesh, as Isaiah foretold. And there is another fulfillment still to come. For Christ was raised in glory, heralded by female proclaimers at first, the women from the tomb who go tell the disciples. And Christ will return in glory to finally set all things right, to finally banish wilderness and make all things new. You know what John says about that in his letters? He says, when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This will be the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. Behold your God. To behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Christ is the deepest longing behind all our desires, whether we know it or not. And if we're in Christ by faith, that's what we're going to see on that day. So what are we going to do about it? The answer of Isaiah is clear. Proclaim it. If you've heard the word about Christ and believed in your heart, if you know the glory of God which has saved you from your sin, then get up on a high mountain and start shouting. The nations need to know. So let me go ahead and close in prayer and then we can praise God together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your glory revealed in the weakness of Jesus Christ, and yet in his triumph through his death and suffering, rescuing us from our sin, pardoning our sin, forgiving us. Lord, we pray that you would enrapture us with the beauty of Christ. And we pray that you would keep us keeping our eyes on him by faith until that day when we truly see him as he is, how we look forward for it. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please stand.